All right, so, John, Rona, we did it. It, it sounds almost like a miracle. Right, it's a modern miracle. I'm gonna do an actual intro. Okay. I'm John Mejias in New York City. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Once again, this is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about life is one big gray contradiction. You know, you look at something, it could be deadly serious and another person can experience what you're experiencing. You could be very upset by it and the other person can find it hysterically funny. And today we're talking to Rona Pondick here in New York. About. And that's why it drives me nuts when someone says, so what's your work about? I want to honestly take a gun and shoot him. Hi, Rona. Hi, hi. I've come to Rona's studio, which I can't say enough about. It's, it's sort of every artist's dream. She has a lot of space and all of her artwork laid out. She's very organized. Lots and lots of flat files, which I love. Do you live here as well or nearby? Um, nearby. She lives nearby. Nice trip across the street or something. I don't know. And that's the scenario. So, Rona, usually the way we do this is we, is we start at the beginning when you were born and we go biographically. So if that's all right, if you could take us back to when you were born and your parents and talk a little bit about where you came from, that would be great. Hmm. Were you born a New Yorker? Or? I was born and raised in New York, Brooklyn, New York. I was raised by my grandparents um, who were both immigrants from Russia and the Ukraine. I, as a kid, started making art really young. Yeah? It was okay. my salvation. What kind of things were they? I always made things, whether it was drawing, painting, as a, really as a kid. That was how I played. I made art. When you, you know, got older and you started seeing art out in the world, like, what were the first things that you saw that made you go, oh, wow, like... They're, like, I could be an artist, or, you know, things that, you know, we would recognize. Yeah, I have a different relationship. When I was really young, I went to the museums. It was where I hung out. Museum mm -hmm. of Modern Art, the Whitney? I went to the Met pretty regularly when I was a kid. Nice. I had a fun ritual where I'd rent bike Central Park in the afternoon, and then I'd end up at the Met where I would just kind of walk through pretty much the, whatever I felt like looking at that day. I grew up pretty much, if you can imagine, at the Met. Mm -hmm. It was really like a second home for me. I didn't think about making art. I don't think being an artist was something I even knew you could do mm -hmm. or be. But I loved being at the Met. It felt safe to me. It felt like I was at home there. Like, how did you find out about it as, as a place that you could just go and then give the a nickel or whatever? Yeah, like, do you remember your first time where you were like, oh, I can just go here? I think I started going to the Met when I was nine years old on my own. So you just, like, were walking by and you saw a big building. I was just there yesterday. Was it your first time, John? 
You know, I, I, I don't really remember. I mean, you know, when you grow up in a city and you do things habitually, I don't remember the first time I discovered the Met or the first time I discovered a museum. But I started going when I was very young. The, the Met is my go-to place to take a girl on a date because I could talk and sound smart. We're just there yesterday. Well, here's your chance, John. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because you would think as a contemporary artist that MoMA would be the place that I cut my teeth. But it was really the Met and the Brooklyn Museum because I grew up in Brooklyn. MoMA came later in my life when I, I think, more consciously got involved in the arts, which was when I was in college. The Met sets off your imagination where you're thinking, like, how were they doing this with these limited tools? It makes me think a lot more in you know, the Egyptian room, how they made that, how they presented it, mm-hmm. how they lasted from a thousand years ago. Did you ever hear of the Stendhal theory or the Stendhal effect? Yeah, you, like, you stand in front of a work of art and you have like a transporting ecstatic experience that can be like pathological. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have that? Yeah, when I was a kid, I think it's if I was upset or depressed or unhappy, I could go there and it would just transport me to another place. I could see that for the Temple of Dendar. What I think is implied in that is like, I often find this with like kids who are raised really in the city, is like a level of independence about stuff in the city that like kids who are not raised right in New York or right in the middle of LA or Chicago don't really get, you know? Just a sense of like, oh, I could just do this. Well, I think also New York was different. You know, I'm I, I'm much older than you are, and kids would take trains by themselves all over the place. You didn't have helicopter parents. I grew up playing on the streets, and I wandered on my own. I took the train into Manhattan where I felt like it. Less paranoid time. How old were you when you took the train by yourself? Nine. You were nine. On the train by yourself, that's so funny. My daughter is 10, and she, she still walks to school with her mom. She'll never be a an different artist. Time. Yeah. My daughter is actually really brave. It kind of scares me how brave she is sometimes. But that's me being a helicopter parent right there. So what at what the Met really spoke to you? Anything in particular? I, I, I think my first love was Egyptian art. Oh, okay. But I have pretty Catholic tastes. I mean, I look at a wide, wide range of things and... There's an awful lot of material out there to inspire an artist. But you are kind of still making Egyptian art in a weird way. Your stuff, there's there's all like this mummification and there's death and then there's these weird creatures with animal, with human heads, which I guess is kind of backwards from a lot of Egyptian stuff. There's a specific statue of Anubis, which is very smoothly done. And it's like a polished sandstone dog uh, it's Anubis, but it's a dog. And that does remind me of your, you have like a, a smooth dog shape and then it's this human head. It seems very connected to me even now. Oh, it is. There, there's no question. Hybridity is something that's very much in Egyptian art, but I think the reason I personally connect to it is that it's pretty much in every period in since the human has existed from the Neolithic period of to now. And there's not a period in human existence where the animal human or tree human image has not occurred. I have this idea that like there's a strain of interest in that kind of fantastic 
ness that's crowded out by people who really can't handle that and they they're more humanistic and more personal and psychological and like for me when Flaubert put out his like the first quote unquote novel Madame Bovary was like thoughtful psychological humanist novel that came right after his book which was full of like monsters that sat on slime couches his friends took him like and they when he did Temptation of St Anthony which was just basically based on that Bosch painting. Like he wrote that book and his friends were like, don't write books like this anymore. Write a soap opera book about this newspaper story about this woman who killed herself because she was in an unhappy marriage. And I always feel like art kind of split at that moment into like monster art and like soap opera art. And soap opera art has been kind of the dominant humanist mode for a long time. Not for me though. Yeah, sure, for definitely not. That's why you get to be on the show. <laughs> Listen, I've gone to my own drummer. I I don't care what's in style. I almost don't even pay attention to the conversation. I'm interested in what turns me on, what either excites me visually, intellectually, musically. I mean, I'm not and I can change from minute to minute or from day to day, and it doesn't really bother me because I'm interested in following emotionally and psychologically what's interesting. And I know that that can be contradictory and it can change from minute to minute. The first things that you did that I knew about were those sort of fleshy pods with teeth, which you've done in a lot of different configurations. And they just seem so much more emotional and angrier and direct and more direct more about real bodies than so many of the other things you would see near them in a, in you know in a in a museum or at least in the context that I saw them they just they like scream at you do you remember how you started making that work or what what you were thinking about the teeth you talking about specifically Yes. Yeah, I do remember. I mean, it was really a very funny story when I think about it. A friend of mine was coming with me to institution I was about to do an installation at. And this was in the early 90s. And he wanted me to join him at the Philadelphia Museum to see a Renoir bather show. And it put my teeth on edge. And I shared with him that I hate Renoir's bathers and that I think of them as bubblegum pink sweetness that I hate. I remember walking through the exhibition and I had such a visceral response. It put my teeth on edge. And I went home and I thought, shit, I want to see if I can take that feeling and put it into a sculpture. And the first piece I did was called Little Bathers. Mm -hmm. And that's where the teeth pieces came from. I feel like angry response to other art is probably a really common motive, but I don't think anyone's ever said it on the show before. But now that I think about it, like I can, I can really see that. Were you making other things with like body shapes before that? Or is that like a whole new thing in sculpture for you? No, I mean, the body fragment's been in my work pretty much from the beginning. 
whether it was using shoes and combinations of other elements, baby bottles, which led into the teeth. You know, um, I'm interested in working with the body fragment because I think it suggests meaning rather than working with a direct narrative. I'm not interested in narrative. I'm interested in things that are symbolic. I'm interested in something that provokes the viewer, kind of jabs at you, and also plays with contradiction. I think life is one big gray contradiction. You know, you look at something, it could be deadly serious, and another person can experience what you're experiencing. You could be very upset by it, and the other person can find it hysterically funny. And that might sound strange, but I think that happens a lot. I think that things flip on each other so many times. You find something really compelling and really interesting, and someone else is either bored by it or they are repulsed by it, and another person comes along and they're just fascinated by it. All those reactions and interactions are things that I find fascinating. And I'm very turned on by. I, I think that point where something might be funny or it might be scary, it's an important point. Like, I feel like David Lynch's movies aren't horror movies or comedies. They're arty, weird movies because there are these images that might be funny or might be scary that, and you're not sure which to do. It's like when you're not sure of your reaction, but you know you've been really provoked. I think that's a really important place, or at least it's a it's a it's a it's a delicate balance and like and things that don't sit in one or the other side of them, they escape genre and so they kind of get more into some kind of art space. You know, like your those little pods with teeth, like they are funny but then they're also kind of terrible and scary. It's kind of like you're waiting for them to, to tell you and you can't, they don't tell you anything. So you have to kind of just sit there and interact with them on your own. So you're, you're going to the Met and mm -hmm. you're, you're being engaged with art. At what point did you say to yourself, I can be an artist? I was in college and I was not consciously thinking about becoming an artist, but I took a drawing class and I got very, very interested and engaged and kind of just fell in love and thought, I want to do this. Where were you at school? I was at Queens College. Was this 1990 the earliest work that you were showing? Like, when did you start showing? I started showing in the mid-80s, and they were pieces that were truly scatological. Mm. People found them really quite shocking and couldn't believe I was doing what I was doing. And I had critics like Jerry Saltz, when he met me, walk up to me and say, whoa, I didn't think you'd look normal when I met you. I thought you'd look like a bad lady. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember how you went from like you were, you know, you got out of school at Queens College or whatever, and were you working for a long time and then you got to show or did you manage to get to show pretty easily? Like, how did that transition go? Were you doing, we often find that whatever job people had right out of school ends up being really important to their work, but I don't know if that's true in your case. 
Yeah, you know, I was at Yale and um, actually Richard Serra was a big supporter at the moment and said, oh, I spoke to Paula Cooper for you and you should just go introduce yourself and the doors are open for you. And this was like in 75. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know what the hell I want to do. I mean, I'm just regurgitating what my teachers have taught me and I don't know who I am. And this this just doesn't make sense to me. And so I thought, nah, I'm just going to go off and work on my own, which is what I did. It was a very different time in that minimalism was at its height. And there I am making these really visceral pieces that don't make sense in relationship to anything that's going on around it. But they didn't feel formed yet to me. I didn't know who I was as a person or as an artist. And I thought, what am I going to start showing for? So it was a choice. Oh, a real conscious choice. And I went off not far. It's still where I live right now. I never moved from the time we left. My husband and I left graduate school and found the place that we live in. And we've lived in since 77. Around, I would say the early 80s, I started feeling like, well, maybe I have something to share. And a friend introduced me to someone at the Sculpture Center, and they were very supportive of sculptors at the time. And I started having some group shows there, and then I did a big site-specific installation in 88, and I started showing that year. What kind of work was that one? Scatological. You, you know, if you want to be a, a painter, you just get a little corner of your apartment, you set up some paint, or I'm a printmaker, I have a room. But you're doing these sculptures with, with metal, and there's casting. It's such a commitment. How, how did this come to be? How, how, what the metal? You? Yeah. You can't just walk down the street and make that. It's a lot of things that have to happen. I think sculpture by nature, you have to be a lover of objects. I walk into a room and all I want to do is touch everything. Sure. And I do. I'm, I'm the person that Just you want to say, keep your hands off of it because I walk over and I'll, I'll poke things that I'm not supposed to touch because I'm very tactile. I'm interested mm-hmm. in how something feels. If it looks soft, is it soft? If it's hard, is it hard? Do you remember the first sort of things working with metal that you ever worked on, what that was like? Um, Actually, I used metal in some of those scatological pieces. You know, I wanted something to be permanent on top of a satin pillow. So I'd take a wax-like form that was like a turd shape and I'd cast it in bronze. Metal has kind of worked in and out of, I, I'm, the, I'm the artist that goes from shit to gold. I'm going to put that on your business card. <laughs> yeah, from, I'm, I'm the alchemist. A lot of these pieces, they seem like they come out of the casting process. Like the casting process has, like when you deal with plaster or something, it makes certain shapes and then you're like, oh, look, it'll be permanent now because it's plaster. And that sort of inspires the thing, like like including the angel, but also... It's a sort of like big gloopy shape on top of like, are these real pillows or are they, are they casts of pillows? No, they're real pillows. Okay. And then there's one, this is like, a, it's like a little uh, animal head on top of a twisty form, like a balloon or a bag. 
that's been cast, so it's a sort of coil. Oh, navel, yeah. It seems like a lot of them like just come from like when you mess around with casts or you mess around with like materials, you can watch them touch each other and watch how they deform each other and that that inspires the shapes. No. Nope. Okay. Nope. Tell nope. me all about it then. <laughs> Excellent. I'm someone who, you know, do you ever hear of modeling and carving? The Angels, like yes, you fill sure. a brancusi yeah, and yeah. you throw them together with Giacometti. Right, yeah. That's kind of my world. I'm, I'm someone who actually uh, models things and I'm making through... And I don't know if you've ever modeled where it's additive. Yeah. So the things I'm using materials that are like clay, but the next day they're rock hard. So I can come back and carve it, grind sure. it, cut it, saw it, or very plastically go right back to adding on to it. So it's the best of both worlds. So these heads, uh, worry beads, Right. Those are bead-sized, right? They go from about a quarter of an inch to two inches, yeah. And they're hand-modeled in clay, Sculpey? No. Nope. What do you use? No. Nope. So when I started using the head in my work, mm -hmm. in 98, I took a life cast of my head, and I started merging my head and arms with animals, and the animal parts were modeled my body was always removed from me physically so those were not mod those were not modeled yeah okay so that was a cast yeah that's a cast but okay. then what i did was i took the very first head this is a little hard to follow so i took the very first head that i took as a life cast i then plastically removed all of my hair took my neck off Plastically, let's say I play like a little like a plastic surgeon. If I don't like something, I plastically alter it. Sounds fun. Then I scanned it into a computer, and then I was able to change the scale of it to any scale I want, make a mold off of the prototyped scaled down head, and then can make it in any other material that I want. And that's how the worry beads were evolved, say. I use a lot of different processes or a lot of different ways to make my things and confuse everybody. Are you see. happy to confuse everybody? No, it's just, it's interesting. I just look at all tools as tools. The computer's a tool, 3D modeling is a tool, modeling is a tool, a hammer is a tool, whatever I need to make a piece I'll use, but so if I say I use 3D technology, people assume that I use it everywhere where it's just one small part incorporated with a lot of different yeah. ways of making. Yeah. Why are you casting your own head? Isn't it easier to get a model? No, because the way I did it, I thought I might possibly hurt somebody because I was <laughs> encased for two and a half hours, yeah, had sensory that. deprivation and I used medical silicone. I didn't want to use straws. And I also didn't realize when I was casting my head that I would start choking. And Did you have somebody watch you at least? Well, I didn't do it myself. You okay. can't. Yeah, it's not say. possible. So I had two people doing it on okay. me. Yeah. And I was glad I had a pad of paper on my lap because I 
literally started writing, get this fucking thing off of me, I'm dying. (laughs) I've had my head just cast in plaster and it was horrible. And I had to show us. (laughs) You know, Zach, I'm, I'm the kind of artist that changes my work a lot. And I don't say that I change it. I think my work kind of spirals. I'm interested in metaphor and symbolism and the material, I'm a material holic. I love working with a wide range of materials. I'm like moving away from metal now and starting to use incredibly acidic colors that look like I took a tab of acid and the imagery went in a very different direction. What is the newest stuff that you're working on? It's going to be a nice surprise for everyone. Okay. I've been very, very uh, careful to keep a lot of people out of the studio for the last three or four years. And really just a handful of people have seen what I'm doing. And it's conscious. I, I don't want people to see it. It's kind of what I went through when I stopped doing the teeth pieces and moved into the hybrid imagery with the metal. Yeah. It's as big a material change and it, it's, it, you feel it very and experience it very differently, even though the imagery is very similar. The beds, mm-hmm. which are early pieces, at least some of them kind of do relate to minimalism, not in as much as like they come out of minimalism, uh, because they kind of don't seem to. They can, seem to come out of just actual, like, looking at beds. But they seem like they could be shown in a space with some minimal objects and people wouldn't go, ah! Whereas I feel like at a certain point you hit this point where you didn't make people go, ah! Did you feel like you were kind of crossing over when you started dealing with the the more explicit body stuff? Or was that earlier stuff getting accepted or shown in a different way? You know, it's an interesting question for me, because most of the people I studied with were minimalists. Those beds for me were a transgressive thing for me to do. They were real objects. And that was a real hard thing in the 80s for me to make a commitment to a real thing. For me, the bed is a great metaphor. It's where you're born, it's where you die, it's where you have sex, it's where you're most vulnerable. Marx said something about like how everything that's in a person is kind of left in the bed somehow. Like it's the repository of that's right. everything. I currently don't have a bed because I'm lazy when I have one. So I just mm-hmm. have a little mat on the floor when I go to sleep. Oh, God. Are you a, are you a sadist? <laughs> I'm something. I don't know. But it works because I, I would lay in bed for way too long. That would make John a masochist. I masochist. That's <laughs> yeah. true. That's true. I'm also interested that like no matter what material you're using, there always seems to be um, not every single thing, not with the plants, I guess, but with almost everything else. There's like a gesture or a position that uh, a body isn't at rest. It wouldn't want to hold. There's that early one that's like a baby bottle and a shoe and they twist together. Mm -hmm. Small spiral, that's it. It's one of my favorite pieces of the early work because it's so simple in a certain way. It's a shoe and there's a sort of pink shape that was kind of where the leg should go, but it's too thick and it kind of has this stocking, pink and white stocking, and it twists around and then ends in a baby bottle. And it's like this whole family 
it's a man's shoe, so and then like a you know kind of a woman's stocking, and then a baby bottle. It's like a whole family twisted into one sculpture in a certain way. But it it has this uncomfortable twist. You can't imagine this, the sculpture's not at rest. It's not like a lot of Greek sculptures where like you can see that person holding that position for a long time, or even like a, even a lot of African sculptures where like something may be taking up like this prepared or threatened position, but it, it could sit like that for a while. Whereas your things often feel like they're kind of frozen action. Mm -hmm. The teeth are about to open or about to close. They're, they're in a position that you wouldn't, that doesn't sit comfortably, but at the same time, it's not like a, it's not like a frozen action pose. It's a sort of twisting discomfort. And it goes all through the years, it seems like. Is this something intentional you've done, or is he just talking out of nowhere and can't relate to it? <laughs> no, it's actually, it's interesting, because I would say that that sounds like he's describing Egyptian work. Um, ah. So that's kind of interesting that you say that. If you think about Egyptian work, it implies movement where it feels like it's about to burst out, but there is no movement. I always think about it totally differently. I always think of Egyptian stuff as being very static. Yeah, but it's implied movement. Hmm. If you have one leg in front of the other, you have these arms that are not at rest. There's this sense it's going to walk out, even though it's frozen, because it's more in the block form. It's not in contrapposto the way you have Greek art, where it's about a more natural stance. There's nothing natural about Egyptian art, but there's the sense it's about to explode outward. I love these chairs. There's a whole series of works from the 90s. I call them butt chairs. Yeah, they, they look kind of overstuffed. Like in terms of like sculpture, it's like, they don't just feel like you've put a butt on a chair, but they also don't feel like they're real furniture. They're somewhere in between where it just looks like there's there's a little animal made of a chair. I feel like there's a lot of things in your work that other people have done poorly because they've done it more conceptually and less viscerally. You know, like the idea of a chair and then it has like women's shoes on it and it represents domesticity in some way is like an idea I could see a lot of people doing and they just do that. They just take the chair and then they match the pattern on the chair to the pattern on the shoes and just put them together and go, look, I'm done. Whereas you made it into a real sculpture and you did it in several different ways. You know, these chairs are only 17 or 15 inches in height. Yeah, I mean, they look tiny. They look like, like about like small dogs, you know? Like that's what they remind me of. Like they're gonna walk across the, the room like <laughs> Do they feel animated to you? Oh, definitely. But I, I guess the question is, uh, we're all familiar, especially artists, like, I think a lot of artists who came up in the 80s would say, like, oh, yeah, minimalism was everywhere, and I was doing this thing instead that was interesting. But I also feel like you're avoiding concept, like, pure concept. Like, you'd have an idea, and you're like, the idea's not enough. Like, it has to be a sculpture. It has to be, it has to have a form. Oh, no, no, no. You have to understand, I don't get ideas. Right. Okay. I don't. Yeah. I'm, I don't get an idea. I'm not a light bulb artist. I'm sorry. Can you elaborate though? What do you What do you mean? You don't get ideas. What does that uh, mean? I don't go. Oh, a chair would be an interesting sculpture, or oh, teeth will make an interesting sculpture, or hybridity will make an interesting topic. I I just don't think 
that way. I get turned on either by a form or I get turned on the way something looks. And I, at the time, honestly, I was reading a lot of Freud and I was thinking about how all objects are either female or male in origin. And he said that the chair was female because it's the holder for the body. And I thought, I don't think so. I don't, I think it could be male and female. And there I took off. But at the same time that I say this, and I don't know where, why I'm compelled to tell you this, until I started seeing a shrink, I had never had a dream where there was a human being in a dream. I always had inanimate objects come alive in my dreams. Oh. Always. And, and then I went in to see a shrink, and all of a sudden, slowly, people started very slowly coming into my dreams. The idea is that, and I think this works is really powerful in your work, is that there's something, like to take the teeth for an example, everything about a person, their identity, who they are, what they're doing, what they're angry or what they're teething or talking or eating, everything about them as an identity in a context is suppressed. The emotion that they're evoking is there or the thing that evokes the emotion. So it's like you can't see what's going on, but you can see what it feels like. Well, I'll tell you, when I know when a sculpture is, for me, successful when I feel it viscerally in my own body. There are different things I think I'm looking for. There are times when people have said to me, you know, I feel like I know this imagery, but I've never seen it before, but I feel like I've experienced it. That's something I'm after. I'm after something that you feel like you know, but you can't put your finger on it. It's enigmatic. It's imagist. Um, it's more visceral. It's, it's something that's hard to put into words. Anytime someone says to me, well, what's this piece about? I know inside I'm going, dear fucking God, do I have to tell you what this is about? Are you kidding me? This is a visual language. It should communicate. Yeah, I mean, usually it's like, ugh. To me, it's not just that. I mean, if that's all someone's getting from my work, that's eh, kind of limiting. Well, I did just say one sentence, but I, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan. I know you are. I'm being difficult with you. I'm jealous of your confidence. You have a lot of swagger. You're not second guessing what you're doing. I know when something clicks for me. Sure. I also know when it doesn't. There are times I throw things out or I can go on and on and on pushing something until it feels right to me. Right. And there's lots of artists that are like, I hope everyone's getting this. You don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't care. I know, I know when know. it speaks to me. And when it speaks to me, I feel confident. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I don't want to be haunted by something that I'm going to go, ooh, I wish I had not. I want to continue on that. I wish I had not put that out there. Yeah. And it's not to say that I'm not, I don't second guess myself. I think everybody does. Okay, you know? good. 
I think a lot of artists that I'm friends with, they work all day by themselves in their houses and they call, we call each other like, I've been working all day, I haven't talked to anybody. I hope I did okay. I'm like, it's okay, I'm sure you did great. Like, I do that a lot with my, with my artist friends. But I also think that having confidence has to do with like, I think there are artists who feel like they have to, that somehow the idea, like they have an idea, they're that kind of artist. And then it's buried somewhere underneath a process that they've put out and then they get an art object, which looks ambiguous enough to be an art object and not just an idea on paper. And then they're like, well, I have the idea. I hope someone else gets it. And I feel like if you don't have the idea to begin with, you're just like, it has to provoke this a feeling. Then you don't have that anxiety about the meaning of the idea. You think so? I don't know. I've never, I've never thought of it in that way, you know? Honestly, I, I, what you're saying, I'm not saying that I agree or disagree. It's just interesting because I've never heard someone say it like that. When you say I don't have ideas, I, 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 in a lot of ways, I feel the same way. Like I will have like literally what you would call an idea, like, oh, that should be blue. But I don't feel like the artwork has an idea underneath it that generates it. And then the object is some third thing, which I hope... I could talk to someone about the idea eventually, or they would get the idea. It's like, the more devoted you are to the idea at the beginning, the more anxiety you have at the end about whether the idea is being gotten. Whereas when your your devotion is more to just the object being a sort of stark thing, then you're like, well, it's doing it to me. See, I, I see it more like a process. It's like brushing your teeth or taking a shower. It's something that's part of your life that's integrated. And it's so integrated, you don't question it. You just do it. And it's a kind of activity that I accept that is a very organic process. I don't sit and wait for an epiphany. I'm coming into the studio and I'm working. And there could be months where... I'm lost. And part of the reason I say this is that there are times that life, pragmatic things come into our lives that force us to have to make changes, but you then get involved in the process of change and it takes on a life of its own. I feel like that stuff is almost easier to understand than the beginnings and the endings of these pieces. Like, when you start a piece, do you have a vision and you go, oh, well, that obviously has to be done in this material? No, 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 no. Do you have a sketching process and, and how does that work? Like, how does it get from, from nothing to the first steps? First of all, I usually work on 20, 30 things simultaneously. I like to live with my work. And so it's not unusual for a piece to have a gestation of four to 10 years um, because it's mixed in with a lot of other pieces that are all being worked on at the same time. You know, if I'm lost, which doesn't happen very much, I am blessed with a pretty fertile mind or way of working. I'm comfortable throwing things out. For me, getting lost is not something I panic about at all. Okay, so if you've got a piece that takes four to 10 years, 
But then you, when you have a show, there are definite periods to the work and it seems like, oh, this work is this and this work is that. So were those hybrids like sitting unshown for years while you were working on stuff that people were already more familiar with? Nope. I mean, I have a very different showing cycle than most artists. I can show every five, seven years and then I do a burst of shows. I don't panic if I'm not having a show every five minutes. I panic if I'm not having a show every five minutes. Why? Because that pays the medical bills here, um, but also just because I, I, like, I like being able to stand more than 20 feet away from my art, and that's the only time I can see <laughs> that far away. Me, because when it leaves you, you have more objectivity? Um, part of it, yeah. Like, you say you like to live with your objects, and I want them out of the house at a certain point because I've been staring at them. Because I work on one thing at a time, mostly. I, I don't want to work on one thing at a time, but the way that these things are made, there's almost no other way to do it. And so I'm staring at a thing for a month at a time, like staring right at it. Don't you want to break from it, or don't you think at times you want to then kill the thing? Yes, but at the same time, I know that... It doesn't work if I don't pay attention to it. It, it makes demands on me that, that I know in the end will pay off. And after a month, I'm done looking at it and I send it out into the world and then I'm happy for it to be gone for a little while. And then when I have a show, I'm glad to see it again because then I am objective. But if it were in my house all that time, I would cease to be objective. I would see it every day and I'd be bored of it. And I'd be like, it's not an interesting object yeah. anymore. I feel that way too. But I also think that that is different because my stuff like doesn't look like anything from 10 feet away. You really have to kind of look at it. Yours are more objects. Nobody ever gets sick of their funny dog. Like if they have a funny dog, they don't get tired of their dog. They're like, oh, look at me, look at what he's doing now. A lot of your sculptures, having them in the house would be kind of like having a weird animal. Like you would never get tired of it. It's a sort of simple overall, but it has these details. I don't know if that's how you feel, but that's how I feel like I would feel if I had a, a house full of Rona Pondic art. I'd be like, oh, it's, <laughs> oh, look, it's that guy. Oh, look at him. Like, you know how people just like, they photograph their dog over and over, like, and everyone else is like, why are you doing that? Like, he, like we've seen your dog, and they're like, oh, look, look, he's doing this. And I just feel like if I had one, I would turn it in the light and be like, oh, look, it's like kind of a blue dildo with teeth. Like, oh, it's got leg. Oh, look at that. Like, I think we have very different um, kind of ways of thinking and working. I, I would put it maybe that way. Um, you know, I kind of want my work to mirror very much how I live and how I feel in life. I don't want the job of having to start and finish something. It feels, it would feel like a job to me if I had to do that. So I, I really like surrounding myself and letting the things slowly evolve and move from object to object. Because there are times when I've got something in the corner of my eye while I'm working on something else. And it's like, all of a sudden, I see what I should do on it. There's no pressure. There's no like, I have to finish this. There's no drum roll. Yeah. I like that way of working. For me, it just, it, it engages me in a way where I come in here and I don't know always what I'm gonna work on when I walk in that day. And the things slowly develop and they develop in a way where I almost can tell you unconsciously, I can't remember 
what I'd done to it, when I worked on it, when I didn't work on it. There are times I take quick photos because I want, when I go home at night, I want to remember what I was doing to the piece and I'll go back and I'm like, shit, I made like almost a hundred pieces in this one piece because I changed it that many times. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had an example of a piece that was in a completely different state and then you did something to it and then now that's what we see. All my pieces are like that. I kid around on some of the very early pieces and say if you x-ray them, you may find a set of teeth in a piece that's made out of baby bottles. You know, these things mutate a lot. Now the evolution, the thing about sculpture is it's very different than painting. You don't see the history when you see the final thing. Mm -hmm. So it can go through a thousand changes. You don't see it. There's no paint buildup. Well, what about these things that are made with the computer prototyping tools? Like they look so finished, like there's a cast and then it's attached. You, to no, 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 you got it wrong. Yeah. See, that's the, the computer process did nothing other than scale down a body part or scale it up. For example, on Wallaby, you've got this small human head and you've got uh, cast hands on this uh, big kangaroo-ish shape. That wasn't all just like one big cast with a couple things welded onto it? Like, how was that made? I modeled the body. Right. I merged the model body from the beginning with that small head. I spent a long time trying to get the gesture exactly the way I wanted it. The arm was trying to figure out how to get the arm to feel like it weighs like a thousand pounds. And this animal that should be jumping is frozen. And there's a tension between the two. Yeah. When that piece is finished, then I cut it apart. It goes into a mold and then it goes in through the lost wax process to translate into the metal. With the tree stuff, I guess like to me, the tree things and the plant things feel very different to me. You know, they're really, they're all fictions. So those are all handmade trees. Right. What was your original, uh, I can't say idea, but the original genesis of the, <laughs> of the, of the plants and trees? Um, just an interest in the same way with the animal human, tree human imagery has existed for a very, very long time. And I wanted to see if I could take on the challenge of making something that nature made. How does the hand, what, is, what does it mean to make something by hand and have something that nature made? but it's not by nature, it's made by hand. Can I do that? Can I fool you? Right. Did you do that on pillow head? That's not a cast like bag, that's just a, a bag that you modeled by hand. Yep. That's cool, I love that. Maybe we can say rather than having ideas, you have questions. Ooh. <laughs> I do have questions. You yeah. know, I think making art is a magical thing, you know, and making something by hand, I think that's, awe-producing. It's like, whoa. I look at a Bernini sculpture and I'm, I'll never forget the first time I was at the Borghese Palace and this fat German walked into the room 
And he just said in German something like, oh, wunderbar. And then an American walked in and said, holy shit, what is that? And I'm standing there looking at this and I'm looking at Apollo and Daphne and there's this amazing object and every person that walked into the room was just knocked out by it. And why were they knocked out? Was it the imagery or was it how it was made or that it so amazed them that a human being made it? That's a pretty powerful thing. And I remember standing there thinking, I want to do that. Some of those stone sculptures at, at the Met just looked so effortless, like they were easy to make to me. I mean, obviously, they're, they're impossible once you start carving away. But I've seen people that know nothing of art look at them and, and just like, hmm. I don't know if you know the sculptor Messerschmitt, for example. I'm not familiar. So go, go to the Met. They have a head of his, and it's sitting in a sculpture court. And it looks like a bomb was dropped in this court. Okay. It looks so out of context. It, it, it's this lead head and its neck is kind of compressed down and his chin is like pressed into it. And he has this horribly pained expression. Mm, yeah. But then you look at it in the room and you're like, this was made at the same time as everything else. And it's. It, it it just is so compelling. I'm interested in things that have that kind of impact, you know? Sure. That either feel like a, you just can't believe somebody made it or it's such an enigma you don't understand why it was made or sure. how it was made and you can't stop looking at it. Yeah. But he also has that twisted, held gesture. That I love, that I love. A lot of what happens in a portrait is because the person is at rest, they tend to feel very real, like there's a person in the room that's just there. Whereas if it's mm. a held gesture, you're immediately aware of its artificiality. It's like a snapshot, you know, a snapshot of someone going like this. Right. You don't ever think of a snapshot of someone going like, like this as being a person in the room because you, you immediately go, oh, it's a photo, it, it froze the action. And those measure sculptures they take the convention of a portrait head, which is usually just like, oh, there's a person's head over there, like, which is its own experience. And they go, no, this is a sculpture. A person would be like this for three seconds and then they would be somewhere else. And so they almost kind of like a, a Moybridge photo, if you can think of at the time, they show you something forever that most people would only see for a second. And yeah. it feels like a lot of your work is like something that might pass, you know, it might be gone and come back, but it's like, you're just taking that emotion and you're like dipping it in and you're freezing it and casting it. I think I'm interested in everything that's disturbing or off or odd or compelling. You know, it's like someone came the other day because they're interested in doing some paper on hybridity and they wanted to talk to me because so much of my work is about that. And she was talking about the fact that she was traveling with somebody else. And the person was saying to them when they were looking at a lot of art, well, I couldn't live with that. And, you know, and I'm listening to this person talk about everything they wouldn't like. And I couldn't help myself. And I turned to the person and I said, 
<laughs> yeah, and that's every boring thing in the world that I want to avoid. And you'll probably have something that will be very pretty and make somebody happy and look good in their room and be an utter bore. I may have said this on the podcast before, but I think it's, it's relevant here. It was like somebody was interviewing Francis Bacon's maid after he had died. And she was saying how the paintings, like she appreciated them. Like she'd like, oh, they would look very grand in a museum, but you wouldn't want them in your house, like, because they're too awful. <laughs> I would, wouldn't you? Oh, of course. I would be very happy to. I have red on prints here, yeah. and probably most people don't want them. Yeah. You know, I'd love to live with a bacon. I'd love to live with, you know, Augustine. And I know I live with John Copeland's photographs because I find them really disturbing and haunting and interesting and I don't want to live with boring decorative things. Yeah, I get that like there are lots of people who find disturbing things disturbing. <laughs> I guess I just don't get why they keep going to museums anyway. The idea is that this maid would appreciate going to the museum because she wants it in a limited exposure. I could understand that. I don't like it. Sure. But I think it was the first time I really got that mindset. Because they do line up. There'll be a surrealist art show or something, or there'll be a bacon show, and people will line up to go see it. But then when you go to their house, it is kind of dull. And they're not artists, or they're not even people who really like want to live close to that kind of visceral thing. They're just visitors. Yeah, they think of that world as a nice place to visit, but they wouldn't want to live there. See, I actually think that things change as well. Like if you read about Matisse, for example, who we look at so, so differently now than people did when he made the art. There were posters that said that a Matisse painting belonged in a urinal, in a room with a urinal. They found them disturbing, distorted, horrible, ugly. What would you say Matisse is horrible and ugly now? Yes, I would, but that's just me. Ooh. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, I don't, I, I disagree. No, but now it's like tote bag art. Or think about the, Matisse, the screaming the monk. I, I think Matisse is wonderful. You know, the, the, the way something is embraced or seen yeah. at the time it's made, it sometimes takes a while for it to be understood or digested. Yeah, yeah sure. I read the, the guy who inspired... He inspired the Nazi art theory, Max Nordau. He wrote in this book called Degeneration in 1888. And it was basically about all of the bad things that were happening in art. And if you read about it in 1888, it's like literally everything that was happening in the 19th century that we would consider interesting now. It's just a list of all those things. Sure. But the things that he chose to include around the margins are actually really interesting because part of what he was angry about wasn't just the sort of sexual stuff or the grotesque stuff. He was also angry about artificial looking things and modern looking things, like just in themselves. Artificial like what? Well, there's an illustrator who's like barely known now and she would, you know, draw children and, and she was an early kind of pre-modernist illustrator and the, or proto-modernist and she kind of made like the children into these color shapes, you know, like a, a kid wearing yellow would be like a yellow circle. with the, And they're very mildly stylized by today's standards, but alongside being outraged at Wagner and being outraged 
at Ibsen and outraged at people who were doing like these things that we would recognize as maybe, okay, shocking to the bourgeois. He was also mad at just this woman for making these very stylized, very artificial sort of children's drawings. And I think part of it was there's something about that artificiality and the fakeness that just outraged people that I think would, the same thing would happen to Matisse. It's like Hitler and Nordau and people like that look at that and they go, well, that's just, it's pre pretense. There's something completely outrageous at the time about just abstraction as a, as a concept, even if it's not attached to anything shocking. Well, I, I don't know if I'm 100% right about this, but I think they were really interested in things being academically and naturalistically correct, and they couldn't tolerate anything that left the norm. I think what upset them even more was maybe that people liked it. It was like, this person, this is getting published? You know, people go to see this? Mm -hmm. It was the idea that people responded to it. I think maybe Matisse, for a lot of people, it was like, they saw this as a decadent thing where people, he would just draw a few lines and then, and then he gets away with it. It was not so much like, this offends me as art, it offends me as success. You think? I think they were more, more interested in classical oh, things. Oh, I think they were interested in classical things, but I think that why, the reason that it, it raised to the level of being offended, rather than just like, no, it's not my thing, was the success of it. There was a whole group of people who were like, sophisticated, urban type people who would look at these things and go, yeah, I see this quality and that quality, and they would just think, what are you people even talking about? This is crazy. There's just no audience for a new idea. There's, you know, it's, it's a new idea. So there's no audience waiting around for it. So that's what's always going to happen. Yeah. That the audience has to, has to catch up, which is why there's so much art about Star Wars because everyone's just like, oh yeah, Star Wars, forget <laughs> it. Rona, do you ever feel like you got ahead of the audience? Like you had to wait for people to catch up to you? Um, yeah. What's an example? Yeah, I think all of my work, honestly. How do you takes, feel about that? Um, Sometimes I think about it and I'm like, oh, it's a pain in the ass. I think most people don't want artists to change their work. They want you to make the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I'm just not that kind of artist. I'm always interested in not knowing what I'm doing as much as it's a process that I enjoy pushing, I enjoy not knowing, and then getting that moment where I start to figure something out and there's the high of emotionally connecting and connecting all these crazy dots and it comes together and it's just, for me, very, very exciting. My audience, you know, maybe I should think about them a little bit more, but I just don't. I really don't. I can't imagine how you would make this work and think about them because it's like you're making the shape until the shape feels like it says to you what it needs to say. You can't be in someone's head, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I've always said I think with my hands. And I honestly, when I'm working, I get very, I get very cut off. And I don't think I'm conscious all the time of what I'm doing. It's not to say that I'm not thinking, because I am. If I'm working and I think something gets too simple, I want to then completely change it to do something that feels contradictory, because I want my work to be layered. 
for me, if it's just someone gets it right away, it's too easy. It sounds like you don't verbalize the steps. No, I don't. And that's why it drives me nuts when someone says, so what's your work about? I want to honestly take a gun and shoot them. (laughs) There are certain musicians where like the songs don't have like a wide variety of subjects, but every song you want to hear it and you want to hear each different one. Mm-hmm. they're singing in a certain voice that puts you emotionally in a certain place, and then they have all these variants on that emotion that are specific in their own way. And so from a distance, they have a narrow bandwidth of concerns. Like, you're always talking about the body, and you're always talking about emotions from inside the body, but the number of things that that, that can contain is actually very large. You never mm-hmm. started being like, oh, I'm going to make paintings about landscape. Look at something like Prairie Dog, and it says 2001 to 2013. And it's sort of this abstract glob with fingers coming out, and they're like cast fingers. Okay, so that took three years to make. And I could just imagine like moving the fingers around and moving the globs around and changing the size of the globs or whatever you did until it feels like a very specific feeling of this twisting, probing thing. You can't articulate it, so you have to make a sculpture of it. There's an idea, but then you have to, you have to do so much more after the idea. Mm, I think I understand what you're saying. And I don't want to sound like I'm saying no to you. No, you can totally contradict But No, 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 no. I, I don't, you know, the piece is actually sitting right next to us. So oh. I'm, I'm taking a look at it. And I remember as I was working yes. on it that I wanted the rear end to look like a fruit. Okay. And could a fruit turn into then this sexualized, strange animal with a pinhead on it with my pinky and thumb and move from one thing to another as you walk around it. I like how you two are just on different pages. It's very entertaining to me. It's good. (laughs) You know, honestly, this is something that you're a painter, you know? I live with a painter. And there are times the two of us start talking and I say to him, God, you've never made a three-dimensional thing. You just don't understand what it's like to move something three-dimensionally and try to change it. It's a very slow process. You can't just wipe it out. You can't just paint it out. You have to remake the form. And you know what? It also has to stand. It's got so many qualities that something that's flat, which is an illusion, that's totally a creation, that's much more of a conceptual activity, even if you don't think of yourself as a painter conceptually, that as a sculptor, the whole process is so different. Well, you're a sculptor. There aren't that many sculptors anymore. No, I know. You know why? It's expensive. And not only is it expensive... It's a problem to store it, and it takes a long time, and there's a big failure rate, so, you know, you you can't expect instant success. And I don't mean out in the world. I'm talking about in the studio. It's slow, so you got to be patient. How many unfinished objects do you have in the house right now? 
about 35, 40. I would take pictures, but I don't think she's going to let me take pictures. Nope. Based on- <laughs> no. I, I, would, nope. I mean, nope. would you, John? I wouldn't, right? It's not finished. Not if he wants to leave with his hands. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you took John's hands, would you then use them? They could be integrated into a piece. You know, it's interesting. I started using my body without thinking about the fact that it's my body and my head. And one head, and this People get really like, really? I've used the same head in every single sculpture since 98. Right. Yeah, I mean, it it looks like the same head to me. A lot of people don't think that it is, but it is. Whether it's changed Mm. size, shape, right now it's mutating. It's not just the same shape. The hair changes enough that I think that's confusing. Like there's like a hair line on some of them and then it's sort of bald. And I think that that might throw people off. When you described how excruciating the process was, I was like, yeah, you didn't do that twice. (laughs) No, 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 no. I only did it once and then that's where plasticity is wonderful. You can change it by hand. Did you ever use real teeth in these teeth things? Uh, They were cast from my teeth at a certain point. Is it that same set, like all those years? Well, first they were rubber rotting teeth that were Halloween teeth. Mm -hmm. And then the company went out of business and I called them and I said, oh, can you make me more? And the guy said, yeah, if you order a couple of hundred thousand. And I was like, well, it's a little steep for me. So I made molds (laughs) for my own teeth. Was that a whole thing? Nah, that wasn't such a big deal. You couldn't find any other teeth? I I like those rubber rotting teeth. Uh, And I use chattering teeth in some pieces. The one that's called heads and it's like a pink thing Uh and it's like teeth coming out. That feels like it's kind of the experience of having your teeth cast might've inspired that. You know that Jasper Johns painting, painting bit by a man? Yes, I do. Yeah, where he just bites the painting and then there's an impression in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know it, honestly, until after I did the piece that I did, but someone immediately said, oh, you've got to look at this Jasper Johns. You're going to love it. You said that you had Augustine, and Augustine has those things that are those sort of fleshy pods that are just an eye, and I was almost afraid to bring it up because... Oh, no, you don't have to. I love his work. His are... They're sensitive, like, oh, these eyes, they're like, oh, they've seen so much and they're rolling around and they're red and they've, they've got a rough, whereas the teeth are lashing out. They're threatening in a way. Okay, let's play the game. When you, uh, okay. when you think of teeth, what are teeth? What are teeth? Symbolically. You bite things, I guess. Yeah, you what else? Consume. You can attack someone or be attacked and you can chew your food. Right, and what else? If someone's giving you a blowjob, you don't want to know about it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Vagina dentata. Right. When you die, it's what you leave behind. You know, they're very metaphoric, like the bed. Right. They're similar. I'm interested in things that are loaded. They're charged. They make your mind go in a lot of different places. Electrically. Gustin's are more symbolic. You know, his eyeball pod is like... You're supposed to empathize with it. It's more imaginative and a little slower and dreamier, whereas yours is just like, there's a very immediate thing of like the teeth are, what, ah, 
they're faster in a certain way. Maybe for you as a male. Mm. You know, for teeth for me is something I worry about because they're so expensive. Like I got this missing teeth here and it's something mm. that's so much money to fix. It's a source of worry for me. I've actually had people tell me they find them hilarious and really, you know, funny and comic. They're scary and funny and that's why they're great. I think if they were just one or the other, they would fall into a genre, you know, very easily and they would be placeable. Mm-hmm. We talked to Valerie Hegarty, who's got those watermelon teeth sculptures that are hysterical. They're never scary to you, and they're never funny what, to you. What, my pieces? The teeth. My pieces? Do you ever think, God, oh, this, this, is, this, is, this is like, ah. I'm interested in things that are disturbing. Right. So do I find them disturbing? Maybe not. I don't find them so scary I leave the house. Like, I want a house full of these sculptures. But I'm saying, like, their aspect is the aspect of something that's, like, aggressive in a way that Gustin's eyeball, which is a similar shape and a similar mm. color often, isn't. Like, the eyeball, you just you want to take care mm -hmm. of it. Whereas the teeth things look like they're going to... You know, people say I'm aggressive. I think I'm really kind of mild, you know? But that's me. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I don't see them the way you see them. But that doesn't mean that what you see is not there. But you see them as disturbing. They're edgy. Sure. You know, I have to tell you, someone I was working with, I said to the person, do you think I've lost my edge? And I was like, serious about it. And the guy looked at me and he said, are you fucking kidding me? I said, he said, what are you asking me about, you know, the work you're showing me? And I said, well, I wonder if it got too classical. He said, don't worry about it. I mean, I do think that the new hybrids are way more classical, undoubtedly. Well, they are. They are. Yeah, they I are. mean, they remind you of Brancusi a lot more, but they also have things about them which are disturbing in a different way. Exactly. All right, the teeth... The scariness is not a scariness about death. It's a scariness about life. Like the teeth are alive and they often seem to be mutating or, or doubling or, or growing. Like there's more and more of them. It's like, ah, there's other people and there's babies and there's life. People have a fear of life in the sense of like other people and, and other life and growing and fecundity and just like other stuff in the world choking you out and just like, ah, I'm so sick of that. And then fear of death is like, things are, they're not hairy, they're not fleshy. Things are getting quieter and slower and, and going away. And it's a fear of things disappearing. The newer, more classical stuff, it feels more Egyptian to me in the sense that it's more quiet and more about a death space to me. Hmm. Like Prairie Dog to me, it's the way things exist when you aren't seeing them anymore, you're imagining them. The teeth are like, they remind me of, a, of an organism, you know, like they are an organism. Whereas the, the new things that are all silver and smooth, they don't remind me of a real life thing, even though they, unlike the teeth, they have like these like body parts that are cast. The, the, the silver and the casting takes it away from that organic world. Kind of the way that like the whiteness of classical sculpture, like that marble kind of makes a lot, a, a lot of us feel like they're separate. They're, they're about ideas or they're about another world. It's like dog, the aluminum bronze thing, which is like hands, dog's body, and then a face. That thing looks mm -hmm. dead. That looks like a corpse. 
You know, like that looks like a something that's been mounted after being stuffed and will never move again in it, like an Egyptian funerary sculpture. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a different emotion encoded in them. I think they do have a different presence. I think what you're describing could definitely be seen or felt. I think they're just different, you know? But I also think, like, the trees are interesting because, you know, plants and trees are alive, but they're kind of less alive than animals in a certain sense in our minds. You know, they're not coming toward you. They're not active. You know, you went from these, like, very animal-like forms. Well, there are these sort of, like, domestic things. They were, like, people. Like, you know, like, there was the beds and there was the shoes and the chairs. And there's, like, that's human life. And to sort of a human-animal thing with these teeth. And then to the, the plants are, like... That plants aren't dead, but they move less. You know, they're about this slow growth. They're more contemplative or something. And then there are these pieces that are like classical statuary in certain sense. And they feel, they just feel very different while still being about the similar emotions. Yeah, they are different. You know, it's hard for me to really answer questions to some of these things because I made one thing when I was, you know, in my 30s and some other things in my 40s and 50s and I've gone through different things and Mm -hmm. you know things in my own life have affected what I'm doing in very profound ways and life comes in as well I'd like to think as an artist that I mirror what it's like to live in my time period and respond both emotionally and politically and psychologically and intellectually. Well, even though you don't like to answer all these questions, you certainly gave us a good conversation nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Although I, I enjoy you disagreeing with Zach all day. So Zach, have, have <laughs> yeah. you had a lot of people say no, 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 no? You're the winner for the no, 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 Zach. People who say no tend to be artists who have gotten interviewed a lot. I think we've noticed on the show, like people who are experienced at at getting interviewed and getting talked to, they have a certain amount of, let's not hear about that again. (laughs) Um, Whereas (laughs) the people who come on and it's like, they haven't had Don do this a lot, or like, they're more like, oh, yeah, maybe. But yeah, I'm interested in how someone who likes the work can come to it and see something and then there's two responses. Like one is like, oh, if you're liking it, you can go ahead and think that. And then there's like, no, (laughs) no, not at all. (laughs) And those are like very different people. I have to say on a given day, I've responded in both ways to tell you the truth. And I'm being honest about it. You know, there are days where, oh, wow, you just described exactly what I want you to feel and think. And then there are other days where I'm thinking, oh, dear God. And that's all there is. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, we try our best, you know, that's all we can do. But at the same time, you know, for me, one of the greatest things in the world is when I recently had a museum show. And because of the way the museum was set up, I was actually able to watch the way people were engaging with my work without having to be there without talking to them and I could just watch. And I loved it. It was just really fun. It was exciting for me. 
Sometimes when you talk to people, I don't know if you find this, but they put things into words and it's disappointing. Right. To me, this is what I keep trying to say, is that if you could put them into words, they wouldn't be good. First of all, you can put it into words. Why bother doing it? You just killed our podcast. (laughs) Yeah. There are so many variations on the animal with teeth, but I do think you can kind of put a circle around things. You can't describe where you are in that circle. Absolutely. You did those teeth things for years, right? If you could describe in words what they were about, then you could do one of them and be like, that's that, it's like a pink shape and it has teeth, then you'd be done. It would say that idea. And I think part of it is simply that that idea has legs, you know, like it or that emotion has legs, that that conjunction of, of shapes has legs. And so it it goes to a lot of different places and the more places you put it in, the more different things it starts to bring up. And so when people ask what it's about, well, you go like, well, they're all about the same thing in a sense, but that's only the sense to which you can talk about it. Or context, you know, like I, I did a installation with these teeth head-like orb shapes that was out of earth and other materials. And the piece was originally shown at the Johannesburg Biennale. And everybody there talked about black magic, the people who were helping me install it, wouldn't touch them, terrified of them, thought it was going to do something horribly damaging to them. And I'm not joking. They thought it was going to harm them. And then that same piece went to Austria and they're talking about the Holocaust. Then Mm -hmm. it went to the Netherlands and In that context, they were talking about dams breaking and people dying. And then it goes to the Lyon Biennale and it's at the beginning section of genetics. And this is the same piece and it gets framed in so many different ways. You know, it's it's not just the imagery, it's the context. And I'm sure when things get looked at, 50 years from now, it's going to be different from how it was talked about when it was made because times change and we're going to be different. Like the thing that would cause suffering or that would cause biting or cause like those things might be different, but the emotion underneath is a commonality. There's something disturbing. Right. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think the hybrid image has gone from the Neolithic period and has gone through every period of human existence to now? Because I think that people have ideas and awareness of the future and animals we know that they don't. We interpret animals as raw emotion. You know, like we interpret them as like, you know, animalistic is a word, like beastly is a word. And so I think that animals are a great, way to talk about emotions there are uh, at responses and feelings you mean taboo emotions that you're not supposed to have as a human being or just really intense ones mm-hmm. it's not taboo to be afraid but i feel like if you if you move like a like a mouse or you you know that shifting head movement it, it explains that a lot more than you know that's why we use you know animal metaphors to describe people it's because we're very clear about it and so they strip away the things that are not common, which are cultural things. You know, like in Johannesburg, they think one thing, and in Austria, they think another, but they have suffering in common, right? 
Mm-hmm. That like crying out with the teeth is, it underlies it. We look at animals as caricatures of people. You know, you look at a goat and you're like, okay, well it has this sort of beardy hair. It looks kind of like a dirty old man. And so I think we use them to talk about our like extreme feelings. And I, I think it's the extremeness of it that's what's important, you know? Hmm. That was pretty good, Zach. Good one. <sighs> I mean, I, I don't know just what you see that. Like, okay, the wallaby, the posture of that, you know, the discomfort of that, of having a body, you know? We look at a kangaroo and a real kangaroo and it doesn't have a discomfort at being shaped like a kangaroo, but we feel a discomfort. Like we wouldn't want to stand like that with our legs like that, with our arms drooping down. Like that would feel like having a body was this terrible burden. Well, maybe I feel like having a body is a terrible burden. Exactly. And so you use that while kangaroo is a metaphor. They feel like caricatures of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't feel to themselves like that, but that's why we love to look at them. You know, like when you see a monkey with a gun, you're like, oh, that's us. <laughs> or you look at a monkey and you don't want to believe that's us. Right, yeah. Your hybrids speak like to that far more than to like an interest in zoology or something. It's only natural to want to give it a human personality, even though the animals are just thinking sleepy to have sex. But we don't want to think about how we're all thinking that, right? You know, like yeah. that's the other one. <laughs> I mean, art is about like stripping away illusions that you get in commercial objects, you know, that sell things and commercial entertainments. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that you would also want to strip away human pretensions of, of human civilization, you know, and, and human mm-hmm. ways of talking and human ways of standing or laying or anything. But I think you're kind of hitting it in a very kind of accurate way about stripping away language. And that's something that I think I do no matter what imagery or materials I'm working with. Oh, now you're hitting it, Zach. All right, so stripping away language, there's only so much language you can use to talk about something where language has been stripped away. Like that's that's the, right, right? Like no, but it, listen. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that there's no value in it. Right. You know, the same way a chef makes food and wants it eaten and appreciated. As artists who make visual things, we want our work looked at, talked about. Whether you can talk about it and really grasp it and share its essence is not always possible. But I think you can talk about what it's not, and that's often really useful. Yeah, you can. You can. Absolutely. If I look at someone like Kiki Smith, to me, it's like you guys could be given the same set of like four or five elements to play with, and you would come up with a completely different thing because Kiki's things feel mythic. They feel symbolic. They seem to refer to some kind of anthropological past, whereas you would take the same elements and they would feel like something that was happening right now. Because I deal with raw emotion. Yeah, she deals a little bit more with culture. And I feel like you could say like, uh, you know, like Eva Hess, there's an emotion there, but there's also just a fascination with just objects, like objects as objects, not objects as creatures, you know, the, the object kind of sits there having an emotion. It's like they're less aggressive, you know, and more 
abstract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And abstract also in the sense of, like, they seem like a memory of a thing. I think they're more removed. Yeah. They're harder to access. They they remind you of being removed. You know, exactly. we have uh-huh. subjects that we're removed from and we, we can th- see them in our heads offhand. And like that, Eva's things like always feel like the idea of a thing. Mm-hmm. You can describe the box that someone is playing in, even if you can't be like, well, why is this thing in the box and also this? Like they're two different things. You know, you're doing it a lot of intuitively and you're kind of working on it slowly and you don't have ideas mm-hmm. or language. Yeah. And then I want to say no to you the minute you say that. <laughs> you literally said that you don't have ideas. All I'm doing is repeating back to you. I feel I like I can't help myself. I feel like we're married. I just can't help myself. No, I have to say, I'll tell you a very funny story. A curator early on said to me, can you write an artist statement? And I really got so annoyed, I'm thinking. And this was the day of the fax machine. And I thought, I wanted to really say, fuck you. But I thought I don't have the nerve to quite do that. So I wrote no a hundred times and faxed it to them. And I got this, oh my God, this is the id. This is such a great (laughs) statement. This is a genius thing. And I thought... Wow, this is the biggest fuck you I've ever done in my life to someone. And they're embracing it. It's always nice when you like get to be the first one who does that. Now you're like, you do that, and they're like, no, do it again. <laughs> Groundbreaking. Right. I did an artist statement that everybody really liked one year, like for one of my shows. Like David Sally would like put it up by somewhere and was like, this is the best artist statement I've ever read. And I was like, the artist statement was like, artist statements are stupid and we all just do them, whatever. Like it was very self, it was like that, you know, it was like kind of no, no, no. Right. It was something like, there's nothing to say about this art. You should just go look at it. We like the paintings. So that year they were like, oh yeah, totally. We'll print it. And then everybody was like, this is the greatest. And it got passed around. Like, this is the best. And the next year, you know, it was like time to do another show. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to write an artist statement. And they're like, don't do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, please just write a regular artist statement this year. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rona. We really appreciate it. This was great, Rona. Yeah, this was fun. So, Zach, did I drive you nuts? I hope not. Oh, no, not at all. Oh, good. This ain't my first rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) I know that in these conversations, you're trying to pin people down in a way that is making the work more legible in a way for people and accessible. There's a part of me that honestly just doesn't give a fuck. And what you said about that, what you say it's not tells you a lot about what it is, is very true. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Rona Pondick's latest work at the Bates Museum of Art in Lewiston, Maine, where she has an exhibition with Robert Feintuck from October 27th, 2017 to March 23rd, 2018. It's called Heads, Hands, Feet, Sleeping, Holding, Dreaming, Dying. There will be a conversation with the artist followed by a reception for the October 27th opening at 6 p.m. Also, John has my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John 
Mejia's Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. And Zach has a book with China Mieval called The Worst Breakfast, available everywhere where books are sold. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page. At We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Are you a sadist? <laughs> I'm something. I don't know. When you see a monkey with a gun, you're like, oh, that's us.